This morning, though, we are looking at Acts chapter 18, so I ask you to turn back to that passage. A few weeks ago, uh, we had the Cedarbrook Golf Tournament. And uh, Cedarbrook Outreach, many of you are familiar with that, is a wonderful ministry that God has raised up for uh, through West Park and now partnered with other churches here in the area to reach out uh, to families at risk, focusing on uh, children, young people, also entire family, ministering the uh, love of Christ in, in uh, very practical ways, but also sharing uh, the gospel. What incredible uh, vision the Lord gave to this uh, church that was affirmed just three, uh, less than three years ago. And now God's using it in amazing ways. And you'll be hearing again some about that uh, tonight, our family gathering, and in the weeks ahead. But uh, we had a golf tournament uh, to benefit Cedarbrook Outreach that was held uh, two weeks ago. And it was a great success. I uh, personally did not participate. Uh, that was requested for everyone's safety. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I play golf. I, I want to enjoy everything I paid for, okay? So it's water, sand, trees. You're paying for all. Just enjoy it all. And so uh, by request, I was asked not to participate. And I did not. I did serve as a greeter, though. I don't know if I was a very good greeter because I just smiled, welcomed everybody, and pointed where they could take their bag, Okay. But I was a greeter. But one thing I noticed that, uh, that morning was right after the registration table, there was another table. I'd never seen a table like this before uh, at a golf tournament. Maybe they are a regular thing now. But the table was the mulligan table. The mulligan table. Okay. Now, if you know anything about uh, golf... Uh, Mulligan is a favorite club in your bag, all right? What it means basically is a do-over, okay? A do-over. So the tournament had a mulligan table where you could go and purchase a mulligan card, okay? Purchase a mulligan card for your group, and I want to tell you, they were selling like hotcakes. I have never seen anything like it. I thought we were sending out an unusual message. It seemed to me like we we're saying, you know, you can cheat, but it's not free, okay? You got, you got to pay for the privilege. But I understood they raised a lot of money from the mulligan table, and we thank God for that. But as I uh, looked at that mulligan table, uh, I must tell you, a thought went through my mind. You know be nice to have a mulligan for the year 2020. <laughs> Some of us maybe think, you know, a do-over would be real good. And truly, in all seriousness, 2020 has been a very, very difficult year, challenging year. Some of you know that far, far more than uh, some of us. Very, very challenging, difficult year continues to be a difficult year. In our text here that I read this morning, in Acts chapter 15, you have 
something that's described that took place in Paul's life. And Bible scholars think that this happened about the year 51 A.D. 51 A.D. But you need to know something about 51 A.D. For the Apostle Paul, it was in many ways his 2020. It was his 2020. An incredibly difficult year. It was a hard, hard time in his life. Hard time emotionally. He was lonely. He was alone. It was a hard time energetically. He was worn out and weak. It was a hard time economically. He was without resources for the most part in real need of a job. And it was a hard year evangelistically. He had ministered faithfully, faithfully, but there had been very little fruit as far as external results would be counted. Now, how do we know that's how Paul was feeling? How do we know that that is really what was in Paul's mind? Well, we know that because it's inherent in what the Lord said to him in this vision. This word that the Lord gave to him. If you now look at these verses again, verses 9 and 10. And inherent in what the Lord said to Paul was a message concerning what his life had been like and what he had been going through and was going through. God has a word for him. And so look at that again. It says in verse 9, The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. Now let's stop there for a moment. You need to understand that inherent in the original words used here by Luke is this. The idea is, Paul, stop being afraid. It's not that Paul might be afraid. Inherent here is that he is afraid. Paul, stop being afraid. But go on speaking. (laughs) And inherent in that is that his fear and the circumstances that he is in would tend to push him toward not speaking. Or not speaking as boldly as he has. Paul, stop being afraid. Go on speaking and do not be silent. Do not not be silent, Paul. For I am with you. (laughs) That changes everything, doesn't it? For I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. 
You don't know who they are. And right now, they don't even know who they are. But I know who they are. I have many people in this city. Now, the Lord visited Paul in a vision. And what the Lord shared was, in reality, a revision. In reality, it's a revision, not a revision, a change in the mission that he had given Paul. Not a revision, but a revision. A revision of God's protection. I am with you. You are not alone, even though you may feel alone. A revision of God's power. It does not matter the enemy that is organized and strategized against you, Paul. I am with you and I am all-powerful. And a revision of God's purpose. Paul, you keep speaking. You keep sharing my message because my purpose is to bring many people to myself. And don't you be silent. Don't think about being silent. And I want you to stop being afraid, my child. I am with you. I have this in my control. And I am going to accomplish my purpose of bringing many people to know me through my Son, Jesus Christ. Now that's a revision. That word from the Lord in this passage, honestly, my friends, has been on my heart for weeks. I can't tell you exactly when, I can't tell you exactly how, but this passage of Scripture, this vision, this revision given to Paul, and a revision of what God had done and what God was going to do has just been on my heart. And I have planned for this to be a time when we could think about it and a, a season when we could think about this. I think it's a message that we need on this Sunday. I think it's a message from God, not that it's my message. It's a message not just that we need on this Sunday, but it's a message we need before this Tuesday. Amen. It's a message that we need at the closing of this year. As we enter the final weeks of 2020, we need this vision. We need this revision. A fresh view of God's glory. A fresh view of God's grace. A fresh view of God's mission that is not changed by changing circumstances.
And so today, just for these few minutes, it's not my intent to bring you specifically a message of exposition. I'm not going to expound a text as we've been doing through the Gospel of Luke. It's not an exposition, but it's a message I hope that will be one of exhortation and encouragement for myself and for all of us. I want you to think with me about three characteristics of a season of revision. Three characteristics of a season of revision. And let me share these with you from taking a fresh look at what's happening in Paul's life, what had happened before it, in the several months of his 2020 year, (laughs) and what is about to happen that's beyond his imagination. And I want to apply it by God's grace to our hearts. I think it's a message for not only us as individuals, I believe it's a message for our church, and I believe it is a message for the church of Jesus Christ. And when I say the church of Jesus Christ, I'm not talking about denominational labels. I'm not talking about those folks who go to church occasionally, but I'm talking about the church made up of everyone who knows Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's the church. So what do we learn? What are the characteristics about a season of revisioning and Communion Sunday is a great time for us to do this as well. First of all, revision involves a reviewing of our journey. A reviewing of our journey. You know, a few days ago I was reading from the book of Joshua. And I was meditating on Joshua chapter 3 and chapter 4. And many of you know this is where the The Israelites who have wandered in the wilderness for 40 years are finally entering the promised land and God has parted the Jordan River just like he parted the Red Sea. And God gives a message to Joshua who's leading the people into the promised land and he says this, I want you to have one man from each one of the 12 tribes to pick up a big rock out of the riverbed. And I want them to carry them to the other side. Now, that was quite an honor for those men. Of course, they didn't know they were going to have to carry them all the way to a place called Gilgal, all right? Several miles away. And then I want you to command these men to stack these stones, these 12 stones that come out of the riverbed of the Jordan River. I want you to stack them here And then God says, this is the reason. So that in the days to come, in the days to come, when your children ask, what do these stones mean? You will be able to tell them how the Lord your God brought the people of Israel out of slavery. How He conquered the enemies and gave this land as an inheritance. People will be able to come back and remember this testimony. You see, friends, it's important 
to look back on your journey and go to some of those piles of rocks, right? That remind you of the faithfulness of God. Why is that important? Because in times of trial and battle and difficulty, you can forget about those things. So it's important to remember, to review the journey that the Lord has given. And what is the journey that the Lord takes His people on? What is the journey? Listen carefully. The journey of every person who served the Lord, as you look back on your journey, is a journey which speaks about our weakness and His faithfulness. His power and faithfulness in our weakness. And I want to take us to take a moment now. Let's just review. Let's just review briefly here Paul's journey through this 2020 year. You think you've had a difficult year in 2020? Check out 51 AD for the Apostle Paul. Let's go back to chapter 16 because this is where it began. Chapter 16, we're told about the first vision. Now, the Lord gave Paul a vision that's recorded in chapter 18. We've just read that. But it's actually the revision of this vision that he gave to Paul. Because how in the world did Paul end up at Corinth anyway? <laughs> and you know that Paul was asking himself that. How did I end up here? How did I end up in this situation? He is afraid. He is being challenged about speaking boldly. It's a hard, hard season he's in. How did he end up here? Well, God called him to a journey. Here's what happened in chapter 16. Let's just review it a little bit. Chapter 16, the book of Acts, verse 6. And it says the Apostle Paul. Now remember, this is the Apostle Paul. If anybody you would expect to be able to say, I've talked to God, he's already showed me this is exactly where we're going. Who would you think that person might be? The Apostle Paul. But guess what, folks? That's not the way it happens as we follow the Lord. Notice this. They went through the region of Phrygia, this is verse 6, and Galatia, and having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. That is, they're down in the southern part of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. They're, they're headed north, and they try to go east. They try to go into Asia, and the Holy Spirit won't let them. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, so they, they couldn't go east, so they tried to go north. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Now, just a little theological point here for you see. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit of Jesus are equal. They're equal. And so they're coming from the south. They try to go east. The Holy Spirit says no. They try to go north. And the Spirit of Jesus says no. Well, folks, what direction does that lead? You don't have to be the apostle to figure this out. They turn west. And they, they, passing, they went down to Troas. How far west did they go? All the way to the coast. Can't go any further unless you get in a boat. What's going on? 
a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over and help us. Paul is committed to doing the will of God. He's been given a mission to go tell the nations about Jesus. He knows God. He has seen Jesus. He tries to go to the east. No, you can't. He tries to go to the north. No, you can't. So he turns west. Folks, listen. God only closes a door or he closes doors to open another door. Don't get bitter and anxious about the closed door. Ask the Lord to show you What's the open door? So he goes to Troas, and there he has the vision. A man of Macedonia across the ocean, a man in northern Greece saying, come over, come over the water and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, don't miss the change here. Look at verse number 10. It says, we. All the way through the book of Acts before this, it's he and them. Here it changes to we. Why? Because at Troas, somebody joined the team. Who joined the team? Luke. This is where the Luke joins the gospel team. Why is Luke joining the gospel team? Number one, he's going to be the historian who's going to write the book of Acts. And number two, he's a doctor and Paul's going to need one. <laughs> so, friends... When God is closing doors in your life, at, in situations, He's opening doors in other people's lives to get us together. And that's exactly what happened. And so they go over to Macedonia. They travel over to Macedonia. You can continue, go to chapter 16, they arrive at the city of Philippi. The city of Philippi, it's not a big city, but it is the city on the interstate at that time. The Via Ignatia. And he goes there because it's a crossroads. East and west, all across the empire. And Paul arrives there. We won't read the verses, but there's not even a synagogue where he can go preach the gospel. You know what that tells us about Philippi? That there weren't even six Jewish men in Philippi because according to Jewish teaching, if there were six Jewish men, you could start a synagogue. But if there weren't six Jewish men, then whoever was a worshiper of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you could go find a place where there was running water because you had to wash your hands and your feet in doing the rituals of worship of Judaism, you could go there and worship. And so Paul can't find a synagogue, so he goes to the riverside and finds some people on the Sabbath day who are worshiping the God of Abraham, and he shares with them Jesus. And the first woman, first person who receives the gospel 
is Lydia, verse 14, a woman from Thyatira. She is a businesswoman who sells purple cloth. You need to know that is incredibly expensive. This woman is a businesswoman. She is the first, con first convert we know in the continent of Europe. And so this man of Macedonia, he turned out to be a, a woman who was the first convert. She believed in her household. She was baptized. So Paul starts sharing the, the gospel with his team in that, little, that town of Philippi. What happens? A demon-possessed girl starts following them around, saying, these people tell us about the Most High God. Everywhere Paul goes, this young woman filled with a, spirit, a, a demonic spirit is crying out about this God that they declare. And Paul casts out the demon. Why? Because he's not going to have the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ connected with paganism. So he casts out the demon. Guess what? The young girl doesn't have a demon spirit anymore. Now she has the Holy Spirit by faith. She's not much good to those people who've been trafficking her. And so they have Paul arrested. You read on through the chapter. Paul's arrested. Silas arrested. They're beaten. They're put into the inner, inner locks of the dungeon. And you know the story... There in that dungeon, they start singing praises to the God of Israel. I'm not sure what they were singing, but I'll tell you one thing. It was jailhouse rock. Because <laughs> it rocked that jailhouse. Amen. The doors fell open. The man thought that that was the keeper of the, of the prisoners. He thought they'd all escaped. He was about to commit suicide and Paul intervened. And the man fell his feet in that dungeon and said, What must I do to be saved? And that man believed. And that night, the other members of his household believed. And that very night, they were baptized. Next day, the powers in the community find out that they've put a Roman citizen in jail. And they say, oh, excuse us, mistake. Could you just quietly leave town? Paul says, not on your life. You come in here. You've put us in here illegally. Now you let us go. And you do this publicly. Why is he doing this? Because he does not want this little congregation to be slandered that an evildoer, a false insurrectionist, started this church. And Paul used his authority and privileges as a Roman citizen for the gospel. So, they give Paul a nice escort out of town. Where does he go from there? You keep reading, he goes to Thessalonica... Another small town just down the Ignatian Highway. Three weeks he shares there. A number of people come to know the Lord. But then there's a riot that breaks out. 
And it's so terrible they have to sneak Paul out in the middle of the night. Chapter 17, verses 1 to 9. Paul has to be rescued from the mob after only three weeks of ministry. So they take him from there. He goes to another small town just down the road. It's a place called Berea. And there people gladly hear his message as he shares with them in the, go- the gospel and the message. A number of them come to believe and they search the scriptures. They are Jewish people. They search the scriptures whether these things are so about the message of Messiah. And they believe. But then... A mob comes. A mob from Thessalonica stirs up a terrible, terrible revolt. So that again, fearing for Paul's life, they have to rescue him again. But now they figure the only way you can keep him safe is put him on a boat. And so they get Paul to the seacoast. They put him on a boat. He goes down to the port of Athens in southern He's so concerned about his brothers and sisters that he's left behind that he sends those men with him back to see how they're doing. And Paul is left alone in Athens. And this is the philosophical capital of the world. There he shares the gospel. He shares the message. But you remember, he does it on Mars Hill as he has a debate and gives his message proving the resurrection. And when he talks about the resurrection, how is that received? They laugh him down. But there are a few that believe, just a little handful. So Paul leaves and he arrives in Corinth. When he gets to Corinth, he's just left the height of philosophy and education in Athens. Now he's in Corinth, maybe the most immoral and ungodly of all the cities of the Roman Empire. It's notorious even among the Romans for its wickedness. And that's saying something. And Paul goes... And he's in that city. And he's alone. And it's been an incredibly hard year. And what does he do? He has to find a job. He's got something. He's got to take care. He's got to keep body and soul together. And look what happens. Chapter 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens. He went to Corinth and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome and he went to see them. Okay? He goes... And joins himself to two refugees. They're refugees from Rome. Why? Because Claudius, the emperor, kicked out all the Jewish people. Why did Claudius kick all the Jewish people out of Rome? Roman historians tell us why. It was because at this time they were constantly battling over someone named the Christus. 
And so the way that the emperor decided to deal with it, I'm not going to have a revolt here in these Jewish people in the, in the capital about Christus. I'll just throw them all out. And that's what Claudius did. And two, these two, Aquila and Priscilla, made their way to Corinth. They were tent makers, and Paul got a job working with them as tent makers, and he began to disciple them in the ways of the Lord. And we don't know for certain, we're not told, but it seems to be clear that he leads them to the Lord. <laughs> so notice, Paul's out of work. He needs a job. He gets a job and he's working with refugees and he tells the refugees about the Lord Jesus. And that little group, those three, are the beginning of the church in Corinth. And if you want to be blessed, you just look up the names Aquila and Priscilla and see what God did with these two refugees who became believers in Jesus as you read the rest of the New Testament. such a terrible time and Paul is afraid he continues to try to be faithful to the Lord and do what he's been called to do so verse 4 what does he do there is a synagogue in Corinth so he goes there and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and he tried to persuade the Jews and the, and the Greeks the Jewish people that were in the synagogue and when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. What does that mean? He gave up his job in the tent factory and started working full time in the ministry of the gospel. And he was testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments. He said to them, your blood is on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now, I turn to the Gentiles. <laughs> Take the message to the Gentiles. And he walked out the door, and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. <laughs> and how far did Paul go? His house was next door to the synagogue. Oh, you got to love that. Paul marches out, makes a turn, goes next door. So you can imagine, now you have people coming to the synagogue. Paul's standing in the door. Come on in here. Let me tell you a thing or two. Let me share with you about Jesus. Well, Paul has had quite a year. And if we just read this story ourselves as we have now, what would we be saying? We are probably reading this account of Paul in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Athens. And now he's in Corinth. And we're probably going, yes, Paul, this is awesome. This is awesome. It doesn't feel awesome to Paul. This has been awful in many ways. This is how the gospel goes to a continent. This is how the Great Commission is carried out. 
God meets him and gives him the vision that we read earlier to stop being afraid, to go on speaking, to not even think about being silent. Why? Because I am with you. No one's going to harm you. I have many people in this city. Wow. So what happened? Paul had this revision. And this revision involved the renewing of his faith. It renewed his faith. And friends, that's what revisioning does. It renews our faith. You see, faith is not based on sight. We walk by faith and not by sight. But faith is based on where you look. What is faith? Faith is looking to Jesus. The creator and the finisher of our faith. We don't walk by sight. We do not make our decisions based on what's going on around us. We get our faith by looking to the one who's above us. And he's above all. You cannot be more opposed than the Apostle Paul was in Corinth. Everything society had was marshaled against him. The philosophy of the society, the theology of the society, the politics of the society, everything was marshaled against what Paul was all about. But what does the Bible say if God be for us? What? Who can stand against us? <laughs> Look what happened. He stayed there six months, a year and six months, 18 months. He stops bouncing around Europe. God plants him there for six months. And then Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, and the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. Oh, now, what's happening? The Jews can't take care of Paul According to their religion, those Jewish people that are opposing him, remember Paul's Jewish and he's faithfully sharing with his Jewish brothers and sisters, but those of his enemies, they can't stop him, so they go to the government. The government will stop this. The government will stop this. And they went to the Supreme Court. Gallio here is a proconsul. Do you know what that means? He is the judge of the entire region. He answers to no one but the emperor. This is not a district court judge. This is a Supreme Court judge. And now they think they've got just the judge who will do what they want done. And so they bring Paul before the court saying... What he is sharing, this faith, this religion that he shares is tearing our country apart. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, he's going to defend himself. Guess who defended him? The judge. You've got to love this. Gallio said to the Jews, 
If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about your words and names and your own law, you, to, you see to it yourselves, I refuse to be a judge of these things. Friends, this is legal precedent that's being laid down that is going to bring protection to the church of Jesus Christ for the next 15 years. The Roman government goes on record saying, we will not get involved in this issue of what's happening among the Jewish people and their messages. No, we're not going to get involved in this. And who's the one that makes the decision? A Christian judge? A follower of the Lord? No, my friend, the Bible says the heart of the king is in the Lord's hand. And like a river of water, he can turn it. And the heart of any judge, any Supreme Court, is in the hand of the Lord and he can turn it for his purposes. He is sovereign. There's only one Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court is the court of heaven. And it can't be stacked by any party. And guess what? It was open court. It wasn't closed. Open court. And when the pagans saw that they had ruled against the Jews, and they had no love for the Jews anyway, they seized Sosthenes, the prosecutor of Paul, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. Gallio paid no attention. Well, that didn't quite turn out the way the enemies thought. They thought they were going to shut down this message of Paul and this message of Jesus Christ. We're going to shut it down. We'll shut it down in the courts. You cannot shut down what God has determined to be opened up and shared. And Paul stayed 18 months. 18 months he shared the gospel. What did the prosecution bring? What did this court case bring? What did the political environment... Church, listen to me. What did the political environment bring to the message of Jesus Christ? What did it bring to the message of the church? It brought a platform. The persecution brought a platform to live out the gospel of Christ. To share boldly the name of Jesus. To be a powerful witness. That's what the, pros the prosecution and the persecution brought. It didn't shut anything down. It just put it on a lampstand. But now Paul did learn from this. And I close with this. And how do we know what Paul learned? Well, turn to 1 Corinthians just for a moment. And Paul learned something from this about this revision. And we need to learn it as well. That revisioning is about restoring our commitment. Paul says, because of what happened in Corinth, 
what God showed me, what God did in the midst of the worst environment in the most difficult year I've known. Paul says, this is what it did for me. 1 Corinthians, now, before we go to chapter 2, you've got to stop at the first verse. You've got to stop at the first verse of chapter 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ and our brother Sosthenes, who was the prosecuting attorney when Paul stood before Galilee, uh, this Gallio? Sosthenes. This man who was the prosecutor of the case against Paul became his partner in the gospel. Is that enough? Amen. Amen. Now guess what? You've got a mission team of two men. What was Paul before he was a Christian? A prosecutor of Christians. What was Sosthenes before he became a Christian? A prosecutor and persecutor of Christians. And here these two enemies of the gospel are now championing the gospel. I'm telling you, God is awesome. And He is in charge. And He causes the wrath of men to bring Him praise. He causes a hatred of men to give an opportunity to exalt His sovereign power and His saving grace in Jesus Christ. Fear not. So what did Paul take from this? Here's what he took from it. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Listen to him. Here's what he learned. For I decided, I decided, I made a determination to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. Do you hear Paul say? This is what he was feeling, church. He felt weak. weak. He felt fearful. And there was much trembling in his heart about what was going on around him and the danger he was in. But he made a determination in the midst of his fear and his weakness that with God's help, he would know nothing but Jesus Christ in him crucified. He would share the message. My speech and my message would not be in plausible words of wisdom, but the demonstration of the power and the spirit and power. I wanted your faith not to rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He made that determination. I will share the message of hope. I will not let fear muzzle my mouth of the truth, of all truths, that God is Lord of all and His Son is the Savior of the world. He committed to remain changeless. He said, I will be changeless for the sake of the mission. I will not change. No matter what pressure society puts on me, no matter my fear, no matter what's going on, I will not change my message. I will share the gospel. 
But he said, for the gospel, I'll do one other thing. Look at chapter 9. This sounds like a contradiction, and it's not. It's two truths in tension. He said, I will not change. I will not change the message. I will not change the mission. But he said, I'm willing to embrace change for the sake of the mission. I'm willing to embrace change. Not change the message. Not change the mission. Those are set by the Lord. But what was he willing to change? Listen to him in chapter 9, verse 19. Chapter 9, verse 19. Paul says this. For though I am free from all. He's a free man. I have made myself a servant. I'm free. Free in Christ. Free as a Roman citizen. But free ultimately in Christ. But I've made myself a servant that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order that I might win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those that are under the law. To those outside the law, that's meaning the Gentiles, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law but God, but I'm under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that I might by all means save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. He said, I am willing to embrace change. I will change anything but the message. I will change anything but the gospel message. I will change the way I go about presenting it, I'll do whatever to the weak, to the Jews, to the Gentiles. I will become a servant to do what must be done to win those who need to know my Savior. Paul's freedom was the purpose of serving God and serving God people my friends that's the purpose of our freedom in Christ to serve God and to serve others and we do that by God's grace with the attitude of a servant I am a debtor Paul said to all Now, my friends, Paul could write those words in 1 Corinthians and he experienced these incredible things recorded in the book of Acts. Why? Because the Lord in His grace gave him a revision. He saw things in a different light because of the light of the Lord in his heart. And friends, this would be a great season. And this would be a great service before this table, before we receive communion, to say, Lord, give me a revision.
take my eyes so much off this world and put my eyes on you. Don't let me measure the challenges in my life to myself. Help me measure them to you. Help me believe that if you are with me, you are all I need. And Lord, you've not given me a spirit of fear, but you've given me a spirit of power, and you've given me a spirit of love, that I can have a healthy mind. Lord, I need you to get my mind right. So my heart can be right, and my service can be right. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we come now thanking you for an opportunity to share these words, Lord, that I sense are so inadequate, but they are your words, your message, your truth, your reality. Lord, may they become our reality. Lord, I pray that in the midst of this very difficult time, oh Lord, you know. Lord, in your grace, give us a revision. A revision of who you are. A revision of the glory of Jesus and a revision of our hope in the gospel and our privilege to make Christ known. And Lord, we ask and beg that we will be a people of hope, a people of confidence in you, that we might be light in an ever-darkening world. We ask this now by your grace, in Jesus' name, and God's people said, Amen.